The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Thank you, Pastor D, for uh, filling in. It, uh, it seems that every time I either preach or lead for a service, Nick gets, uh, Pastor Kennecott gets stuck behind train tracks. So, um, you know, just for next time, Pastor Nick, I'll, uh, I'll probably just take it over myself. I'll, I just assume that you'll be in traffic. Um, but it is an honor and a pleasure to be here tonight uh, delivering you the Word of God. Uh, I ask you to take your Bibles now and turn to the book of John, John chapter 13. And we're going to settle in on one verse this evening, and it's going to be the first verse. And uh, my North Group folk that are here, uh, this sermon will sound familiar because I preached it not too long ago, a few weeks ago up there, and I thought it would be encouragement for the whole church body to hear. So um, I'm going to share that with you tonight. So John chapter 13, verse 1 And the word of God reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to part out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you again for this time that we get to stop um, our work during the week and our, um, our endeavors that we have that, uh, that pull us away sometimes and the distractions, even the responsibilities. Um, it seems that life can get so busy and we just thank you for the Lord's day where we can stop and just dwell upon your truth and dwell upon your goodness and dwell upon your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we, we ask father that you would help us by your spirit Meet with us tonight. Minister to us tonight. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. One of the greatest theologians of the 20th century uh, was a man by the name of Karl Barth. Uh, He was a Reformed Protestant of Swiss descent who lived from 1886 to 1968. Uh, His major contribution Uh, was a radical change in the direction of theology from a 19th century man-centered theology. Uh, He wanted to bring a God-centered theology, especially to cope with the grim realities of the 20th century, what had all happened in the 20th century, mainly World War II uh, and obviously World War I. But he, he asserted God's sovereignty and his otherness from man and man's culture. He emphasized God's rule and supremacy and his ultimate control over all things. Uh, He produced a large body of work over the course of his lifetime, most notably the Epistle to the Romans, and he also had a 13-volume treatise on Christian theology entitled Church Dogmatics. Okay, this was a very intelligent man, very gifted man by God. Uh, As the principal author of the Barman Declaration, He was the intellectual leader of the German Confessing Church, uh, the Protestant group that resisted the Third Reich. So Barth's writings have been translated into every European language, as well as Russian, Japanese, Chinese, Korean, and more. And on the tail end of his life, April 23rd, 1962, 
he spoke at Rockefeller Center, or Rockefeller Center, Rockefeller Chapel, and uh, the campus of the University of Chicago. And many reported that during a Q&A time, uh, a student asked Karl Barth if you could summarize his theology in a single sentence. Uh, pretty difficult to do, to summarize all of your theology, especially with a man of intellect like that, uh, to summarize his theology in one sentence. And as the story goes, Barth responded by saying, in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. For he says, the whole Christian life flows from this one fundamental truth. And while it's true, this is the fundamental truth, this is the truth of all truths that we need to believe, but yet it is hard to believe at times, isn't it? It is difficult to believe that Jesus loves us as much as he says he does. Charles Spurgeon once said that the greatest endeavor in the Christian life is to believe that God loves you as much as he says he does. For it's not only a marvel that the king of glory would condescend so low to love a person like me that scripture describes, but that I am so unworthy of this love that it just can't be true. That a being this great would love me. So according to Spurgeon, tracking down God's love for him was the greatest pursuit of his life. It was his ultimate aim. All of his study of theology, church history, and biblical knowledge was only a means to that final end, to understand something of this infinite love that God had for him. For he understood that if he had that deeper understanding, if he stood upon upon that truth of Christ's love for him, the greater Christian he would be. For Ephesians 3.19, Paul says this quite clearly. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, but you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So the more that we experience and understand God's love for us, the more we grow into that in our understanding and our experience, the more we will be filled with life and power. And that's what we all need, brethren. That's what we all need. For you could do nothing without me, Christ said. So it's understanding this truth and believing it is where the life and power to succeed and to be victorious in the Christian life. So that's my prayer for this evening, that we would grow in our understanding for God's love for us, Christ specifically. And I'm just going to look at two characteristics of his love tonight. But before we get into that, I want to set up the context a little bit to help us to understand um, everything that's going on that will give us the backdrop in which we can venture into Christ's statement that his never-ending love for us and his particular love for us. So first, the context. We go to, back to verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the, this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, this scene begins in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, John gives us the historical setting of this scene. As religious Jews were pouring into Jerusalem 
from all over the Mediterranean and all over the Middle East, there's going to be this small pocket in the upper room of Jesus with the 12 disciples. And as the entire city was filled with countless thousands of pilgrims and worshipers who were pouring into the Holy Land to celebrate the Passover, yet it's what's taking place in the upper room that is the real unfolding of this story. And it's that Thursday night of his final week before his death and resurrection. He will be arrested early in the morning, really in the darkness of the middle of the night. He will undergo a false trial in the wee hours of Friday, and he will be executed on Friday upon the cross. And this act of love that is expressed and demonstrated during the Passover feast It is very significant. Now, why is it significant that this is happening during Passover? Well, the Passover was a memorial dinner that commemorated God's deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. When the angel of death passed by the homes of the Jewish people that had the blood of the lamb upon the door. And this feast was instituted so that they would remember what God had done for them that God's deliverance and to reflect upon God's grace and God's mercy in their salvation. But more importantly, the Passover was a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice that God would make through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the true Passover, the lamb. He was God's lamb. As we remember in John 1, as John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For it was God who would offer up him up as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And God's eventual wrath and judgment would pass over all who would place their faith and trust in Christ. Well, brethren, that time is now at hand. All those years leading up, all those centuries building, remembering, foreshadowing what Christ would ultimately do, it was now upon us. It was only a few hours away. This work was about to be accomplished. For it says in verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, he knew that his hour had come. Now this is a recurring theme in the Gospel of John. When Mary asked Jesus to do something, Because the wine was all gone at the wedding feast. Jesus tells her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Or when in John chapter 7, when Jesus' brothers implore him to go to Jerusalem. For if you do these things, show yourself to the world. You do these miracles, manifest it to the world. Jesus replied, what? My time has not yet come. But your time is always ready. And as the Pharisees demanded a sign for him to prove that he was the Messiah, he would respond, you shall receive no sign, for my hour has not yet come. So John is constantly luring us in this narrative, enticing us to anticipate something that's about to come. Something amazing was about to happen. Now, what was this hour that Jesus is referring to? Well, in some, it was the hour of his humiliation, death and resurrection, where he would provide redemption for his people. It was the hour for which he came into the world. It was in this hour that all of his disciples would forsake him 
in fear of their own lives. It was in this hour that his most loyal disciple would deny him three times. It was in this hour that out of the 12 that Judas the devil would betray him for 30 shekels of silver. It was in this hour that he would be mocked and scorned and by his own people as they yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. It was in this hour that he would be nailed to the cross, crucified in agony as he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know that what they do. It was in this hour that he would be abandoned by his father whom loved him from eternity past that always loved him. But now the relationship is separated for he experienced his righteous indignation and wrath for the sins of his people. But it was also the hour of his greatest triumph as he yelled out to Telestai, it is finished where he would rise from the grave on the third day, having secured salvation for his people, defeating sin, death, and the devil. And it's with this backdrop in view, Jesus knowing that this is about to happen, that these things are coming shortly, that he was about to return to the Father, that he was about to leave the disciples alone, scared, fearful of their own lives, And notice that Jesus is not thinking about himself here. He's thinking about his disciples and what their condition is. And it's in this time that John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes this unbelievable declaration of Christ's love for his own. At the end of verse 1, we read, When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And it's in this proclamation that we begin to see the supreme love of Christ. And I want us to sit on this verse and dwell upon it, meditate upon it. I'm going to open up the text for us under two main headings and then lay out some practical applications. I want us to see two characteristics of Christ's love for his people that we observe in this verse. First, I want us to see the particular love of Christ. The particular love of Christ. And second, I want us to see the persevering love of Christ. The persevering love of Christ. Okay, first, we see Christ's love is a particular love. It's a special love. Back to the text, it says, having loved his own who were in the world. Notice the distinction between his own and the world. Who were Christ's own? Well, they were his sheep. They were his own sheep. They were his sheep who had been given to him by the Father. In John chapter 1 and in John chapter 3, they're described as those who were born of God. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that's the first marker of Christ's own, that they were born of God. In John chapter 6, it says that they are those who had been given to him by the Father. Jesus said, This is the will of the Father who sent me, 
that of all he has given me, I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Another marker is that the father gives the son his sheep. And this was from eternity past, from all of eternity, before the foundations of the world. God gave a remnant to his son. And in John 10, they are those to whom Christ not only dies for, but gives eternal life. For Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So we see here that Christ's love is a very particular love. It's a special love set upon his own, his own sheep. He dies for them. He gives them his spirit. He gives them newness of life. He gives them eternal life. And we must understand that he doesn't love everybody like this. He doesn't love everyone like this. And I know it's a common cliche in evangelical circles today to tell everyone that Jesus loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And don't worry about that. He loves you no matter what. And in a sense, that's true. Jesus does love everyone because Jesus is love and he created all things and created everyone. But he has a particular love, a special love for his very own sheep, brethren. And there is a distinction between his own and those that are of the world. Back to the text, it says, and he loved his own who were in the world. What is the world here? What is, what is this meaning here of the world? Well, the world here refers to the entire human race out of which Christ called them out of. This is speaking of that portion of mankind which comprised the world system that is in rebellion against God. The world that does not know God. The world that has rejected Christ. The world that hates Christ and hates his followers. In fact, in John 15, 18, Jesus tells his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And he's not referring to the world here as the earth, as in the mountains and the trees and things that God created. For none of those things obviously hates Christ. And it's, even, it's not even talking about the anti-God system, but the people who are in the system and who glorify it. That's what we're talking about. That's what Christ is talking about in terms of the world. It's the world of unbelievers, the fallen human race. John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now you want to know what's a good indication of whether or not you are his own, whether you're his sheep or not. Ask yourself this question. Am I loved by the people of the world? Am I praised by unbelievers about my life? Are they comfortable with me around them? Do they just feel at home when you're around? Or do they feel convicted when you're around? Do they see something different about you? Or maybe unbelievers maybe tend to shy away from you. Maybe even speak ugly about you or tease you about being a Christian or seek to mock you in some way. 
Can you say that about yourself? Can you say that you stand out, that the world does not love you? Because Jesus said that. If the world hated me, it's going to hate you as well. If you're my disciples, if you're living, if you're following me, then your life will be a conviction to those outside that are living in the world. So the distinction between Christ's own and the world's own. If you were of the world, the world would love you because you would be the world's own. But because you are not of the world and I chose you out of it, the world hates you. So in John 13, 1, we see the distinction between believers and unbelievers. And someone may ask, well, is that really loving by Jesus to have his particular own, own people, his own sheep, to set his special love on certain people? Well, just as an illustration, there are many women in this world that scripture calls me to love because scripture calls me to love all people. But there's only one, one woman that my heart is set upon. It does not speak poorly of me to love her exclusively to the exclusion of everyone else. In fact, it's a mark of purity and a mark of holiness to have a special supreme love for the bride. And this was the heart of Christ towards his own, that he had a special saving love for his own sheep. They are his bride. They're his bride. You are his bride. But an important question rises regarding this truth. What was it about you that would provoke such love? You ever asked that? You ever tried to ask that question or try to answer it? Why did God love me? Now, this is when we're talking about God's sheep here, I'm not talking about a glob of people. No, Christ loves you personally, okay? Individually, you. Now, you ask yourself this question, why? Why does Christ love me? Was it some special worth or inherent value that caused him to love you? Well, no, because in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul states, for while we were enemies, while we were, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. You see, we were enemies. We were weak and sinful and rebels against his will. So it couldn't have been any inherent value of ourselves. Was it because we loved him first, so therefore Christ's heart melted towards him or them in some way? No, for 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. Has Christ loved us because of something that we can do for him, which makes us special in some way? And the answer is no. John 15, 5 says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's not what we bring to the table that causes him to love us. So why does Christ love his own? And I want you to know there's really no explanation outside of himself. For he is love. And he simply loves us because he loves us. He loves us because he's chosen to set his heart upon us. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, uh, verse 7 and 8, this truth really comes to light. It says here, Moses, uh, Moses here is conveying this truth that Israel is God's chosen people. If you want to turn back, go to, go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. 
Actually, back it up to verse 6. Verse 6. In verse 6, Moses says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. So God chose him. God said, You are my special treasure, Israel. And why did God choose him? Why did God choose Israel? Well, Moses says in verse 7 and 8, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." So why did God love Israel, right? It wasn't anything about you, Israel, that drew him to you. The reason is simply because he loved you. And this same truth applies to all that are in Christ, that are all that are of his own. We are his special treasure. He has set his special love upon you. And not only does he love us particularly with the special love but he loves us unconditionally. It's an unconditional love. Despite your flaws, despite my flaws, despite my sin. Christ, knowing that all of his disciples were about to betray him and forsake him in the most crucial hour, yet he still loved them. I think of that great hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. And uh, in the, the second stanza, the hymn gives us a vision of the great wedding feast in heaven where the faithful are singing about Christ's amazing love for them. And the hymn writer writes, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thanks, thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Brethren, understanding and pondering God's unconditional love for you is a very beautiful and encouraging and powerful truth. If the love of God, the starting or the initiation of the love of God is not based upon me, it's not based upon you, but it's a result of his undeserved favor, do you know how joyful that should make me? You know how freeing that is, that truth? Knowing that he loves me because he loves me and there's nothing that I have to do to bring to the table for him to love me. No, it's set and fixed. And this is freeing, brethren. This is a freeing truth that it doesn't depend upon me anymore. I don't have to spend each night with some sort of scorecard going on, uh, going down and, and, and checking off, did I, did I keep myself in the love of God today? No, he, he, he calls us, right, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling But scripture doesn't tell us to do this so that God will love you. No, he loves you unconditionally, despite your flaws, despite your sins. 
No, rather we're compelled to work out our own salvation because of his love. It's the free flowing of Christ loves me unconditionally. I stand upon that truth. I rest in that love and therefore I can love others. Therefore I'm compelled to please him and work out my own salvation. It's from that truth coming in and understanding that nothing will separate us from this love. It's an eternal love. It's an everlasting love. And so we're to walk in this love every single day of our lives and remind ourselves of it. For you are the most privileged people on the planet. I tell that to, you know, my, uh, my North group when I, when I spoke there last time. We are so blessed and privileged that Christ chose you out of the host of millions and millions of people that he passed over. No, he chose you. Specifically, he said, I want you in heaven with me. I'm going to pour out my love. I'm going to pour out my grace over and over again. I'm dumbfounded sometimes. How many times I fail him and yet he's right there. He's just right there. In the end, we're just beneficiaries of his amazing grace. And this amazing love, brethren, is the motivation and the fuel that should drive us in, the, in our Christian lives. It's like Pastor Smith said earlier, earlier this morning, what is the fuel and motivation to love our spouses? It's the love of Christ. It's the gospel. It's the unconditional love that he has for me. Therefore, I'm going to reciprocate that as best as I can to my significant other, right? It should drive us to be more joyful in the Christian life, how privileged we are. And we have to remind ourselves of it. It should drive us to be more holy and be more Christ-like. For Christ, if Christ loves me this much, oh, I want to please him. Oh, I want to live for his glory. Oh, I want to tell everybody about who he is so everybody can experience this love. You know, there's so many people around that are just, even Christians, downtrodden, sad, depressed, why? Well, we're not standing upon this truth, the fundamental truth that Christ loves us unconditionally with a special love that will last for eternity. It should drive us to be more content in our lives, even in our circumstances. Paul said in Philippians chapter four, not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? And Paul's not saying that Christ is going to give me supernatural power to take on everything. No, it's the love of Christ. I can, take, I can be content with where I am. No matter where I am, no matter what I'm going through, I can be content because he loves me. And then the exhortation is for you and I to grow in the understanding and the experience of this love. It's to be our greatest pursuit. It's to track down this love. It's to track it down. So first we see that Christ's love is a particular love, a special love. So second, this text shows us that Christ's love for his people is a persevering love. 
It's a persevering love. Verse one, having loved his own that were in the world, notice the end of the verse. He loved them to the end. It means to the uttermost. It means he loved them to perfection. It is a perfect love. As one commentator put it, it was not only love to the last breath, but it was love in its highest intensity. Okay, in regards to his love for his disciples, it was all the way to the end. John MacArthur writes about this verse. When it says he loves us to the end, it means to the max, to the full, eternally and infinitely. As much as an infinite, eternal God can love, that's how much he loves us. Immeasurable, its depth, its height, its length, inconceivable. Certainly, we can't fathom this love, but we can venture into it and grow more into it, you know, as our life goes on. And certainly he says that he would love them to the end of his life. And this is quite a statement um, regarding the disciples, that he would love them to the end because they were continually failing him over and over again. J.C. Ryle comments, knowing perfectly well that they were the disciples were about to forsake him shamefully in a few short hours in full view of their approaching display of weakness and selfishness. Christ did not cease to having loving thoughts of his disciples, right? He was not weary of them. His love didn't grow, to- uh, grow cold toward them because of their failures. But no, it says that he loved them and he continued to love them all the way to the end. And this, po- uh, this point is perfectly illustrated in Peter's denial of our Lord. In Matthew twenty six thirty one. you don't have to go there, I'll read it for you. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you in Galilee. Verse 33, Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will, never be, I will never be made to stumble, Lord. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Well, the rooster did crow three times. And Peter, sure enough, denied his Lord. It was Peter who was in his inner circle, one of the three who saw Christ's glory in the, in the Mount of Transfer, uh, Transfiguration, the one whom Jesus changed his name to the rock, for who upon I will build my church, the one who proclaimed before any disciple when Christ asked who he thought he was, Peter boldly declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It was Peter who walked by him for three years, seeing his miracles, hearing his teaching. Now he denied that he ever knew him. Now, if you've ever been rejected by someone that you love, a family member or a friend perhaps, it hurts. It hurts deep. And forgiving that person, it's even harder to do. It takes maybe years sometimes for those wounds to, to heal. And knowing this must have hurt Jesus, must have cut Jesus in the deepest way. 
And yet, he still loved him. In Luke chapter 22, we see that Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. For Jesus said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith shall not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brother. Your faith shall not fail you, Peter, for I will not let you fail and you will return to me. And that's a word of perseverance for us, brethren. I will not let you fail. Some of you may be backsliding. Some of you may be dealing with secret sins within your heart that are struggling. Christ is not going to let you fail. Okay? He loves you too much. Nobody will snatch them out of my hand. We will persevere. But we won't persevere because of our own strength, of our own spiritual strength. I tell my wife sometimes I'm a spiritual savant, but I just, I joke about that word. But it's, it's not anything of us. It's all of him and his never-ending love, his persevering love. Because love is strong. It's settled. It's sure. And I love the verse on the day of the resurrection where Mary sees the empty tomb and sees the angel sitting beside it. And he tells her, do not fear. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and what? And Peter. And Peter. Right? He wants, Jesus wanted Peter to know that I forgive you. You failed me. You turned away from me. You forsake me at my most crucial hour but I won't fail you. I won't fail you. Albert Barnes comments on this. It is remarkable that Peter is singled out for special notice here. It was proof of the kindness and mercy of the Lord Jesus. Peter, just before the death of Christ, had denied him. He had brought dishonor on his profession of faith. It would have been right if the Lord Jesus had from that moment cast him off and noticed him no more. But he loved him still, having loved him once, he loved him to the end. And so we speak so much about Christ's love for the lost, for sinners, and rightly so. It's the essence of the gospel. Jesus came for sinners like us, and we speak about how amazing it is and that Jesus uh, laid aside his glory to come down and take upon our nature and went to the cross and died for our sins and All of these truths are so glorious. It's things that the angels desire to look into. But the love of Christ to those that he has redeemed is no less wonderful, brethren, even though it is far less considered that he should bear with all of our countless sins from grace to glory, that he should never be weary of our lack of faith or our inner thoughts or desires that are displeasing to him or even the fact that we treasure so many things other than himself that we place idols before him yet that he should go on forgiving and forgetting incessantly and I said it before I just marvel sometimes how many times I fail him and yet he's still right there present with me 
because his love never ends. I think about my daughter Cosette and how patient you must be with two-year-olds. And with her misbehavior at times, um, even when just eating dinner, it seems like it takes five hours just to clean up everything. Constantly making the same mistakes. Constantly having to discipline her. Your patient as a parent is so thoroughly tried. I mean, and I'm just going through the twos. I mean, I know a lot of you, you're already past that, that stage, but it, it doesn't even come close to the patient that, that Christ has tried by Christians, by, by his own people. I think about my patient, how quickly I, it wears thin. And you just get angry and you clench your fist. And you're just like, why are you not getting this? Well, she's two, number one. But it's not, it doesn't even compare to Christ's patience with us. His long suffering is infinite. It's a love that passes all, surpasses all knowledge. And I want to affirm here this evening to you that he's going to love you to the end. And brother, this is a great reminder for us as we journey through our Christian lives. He has everlasting patience with us. Yes, we do struggle with our remaining sin. It's going to be a battle all the way to glory. We do falter and we do stumble. And at times, maybe even sin grievously against him. And certain doubts and, and thoughts can creep in our minds. Does he still love me? Can he still love me? Has he given up on me? And I mean, I've sinned against him countless times. My faith is weak, but Jesus knows it all. And he still loves you just as he loved Peter and the rest of his disciples. And brethren, don't ever believe that Jesus will cast you off because of your failures. Jesus will never reject one of his own street, one of his own sheep for going astray at times. Those he receives, he always keeps. Those he loves, he loves to the end. And I think about, we won't, we won't even appreciate this. We won't even grasp the fullness of this until we see Christ in glory. And you think about that day and what that day will be like for believers. But I think some of the, when we see him face to face for the first time and knowing that the sins, now that we see the fullness of who he is, how could I ever sin against you? It will probably bring us to tears, but he would wipe away those tears. He says, it's okay. I know. He knows it all. And so we think about that and his promise that shall never be broken. It's for us as well as the saints. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you've come to Christ and if you set your faith upon him, he will not cast you out. For I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. It's a persevering love. It's a glorious truth. Guaranteed heaven because of who Christ is. And I know that I've been speaking a lot about Christ's love for his people. But if you're here this evening and you're not a believer, if you're not one of his own sheep, but you know you're outside of the flock, don't be afraid to begin with Christ. Don't be afraid to begin with him. You may say, well, I've done horrible things in my life. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that I've 
seen and, and thought in my own mind and, and, and have said to people and how many people I've hurt? Is it any different than Peter? Any different than the disciples? Any one of us before we became Christians? No. No, Christ came for sinners. Christ came for those, not that are healthy and righteous, but he came to heal the sick. He came to heal the sinners. So if you're an unbeliever this, this evening, I, I plead with you to come to Christ. I plead with you. Wouldn't you want to experience this love? Wouldn't you want to know that you have the hope of eternal life? It's all offered to you free. Nothing in this world you can get for free. Nothing. But the greatest of gifts you can get for free, which is eternal life. Please, come to Christ. Come to him. He says, just come to me. Touch my hand. The leper that was sick, that had leprosy all over his body, right? Walking towards Christ. He knew Christ was the only one that could heal him. Clawing after him. Lord, if you're willing Make me clean. And what did Jesus say? I am willing. I am willing. For if you feel the, the filthiness and the dirtiness of sin in your own life, come to Christ and he will clean you. The leper miraculously was healed. And praising God, saying, that's a, that's, a, that's a symbol. Yes, the miracle happened. That's a symbol for us, for any sinners that come to Christ, that he will make us clean. And the offer is to you, right? Think about this. We pray for you. Anybody who's an unbeliever, come, come talk to me after the service. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth about Christ's love for us, that it's never-ending eternal. It's infinite, Lord. We can't even fathom. It's inconceivable how much you love us, how much you love your own people. And we thank you for the privilege that is ours, that we get to enjoy this love for all of eternity, that, that Christ is ours and we are his. And we've been bought by the precious blood of the lamb. And Father, we do pray. We, pr- we pray first for the saints. We pray for the brethren, Lord. We ask that you encourage our hearts by your spirit to help us to live our lives worthy of the gospel and that that we would think about this love that he has for us, that you have for us, Lord, and that we walk in it. It would be a motivation for every virtue in the Christian life. Oh, Father, we pray for the sinners here this, uh, this evening, those that are outside of Christ. Would you come and would you do a special work? Would you have mercy upon them as you had mercy upon us? Would you save them by your spirit? Give them a new heart. Transform them. Adopt them into your family. Oh, Father, this can only be done by your spirit. We, we can't do anything on our own. It's all of you, Father. Even the Christian life itself, the fullness of God, life and power comes from understanding your unsurpassing love for us. Help us to grasp this. Help us to pursue this, this love in our understanding, in our experience, so that we could be bold witnesses for you. 
so that we could be lights, shining lights in a dark world. Oh, Father, would you do this? We thank you for this day. We thank you for the truths that have been offered to us. We thank you for your word that has been revealed. Father, we ask that you would bless us in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.